welcome to episode 76 of the Avatar Hour podcast, your ultimate companion podcast to the world and fandom of Avatar. I'm Andre. And I'm Kayla. And today we are joined by members of Team Avatar Films, Victor Zhang and Martin Dahan. How's it going, guys? Going great. Um, 11.30 a.m. on the East Coast. Kind of rainy, but it's doing all right. 5.30 here. Awesome. Oh my goodness. Yeah, Martin's coming in from the Netherlands, so we're going international for this podcast. Love that. Um, awesome. So uh, before we you know, get into Team Avatar Films and your guys' roles, we want to ask all of our guests is how did you guys find avatar were you watching it when it was coming out did you guys find it later on like in the avatar renaissance era like where where did you guys find the show victor let's start with you so i did watch parts of it when it began airing again i feel bad i should know the trivia off the top of my head i believe it began airing (laughs) in 2005 right 17 years ago so i did did watch it as parts of it as an era but to be quite frank it didn't captivate me for whatever reason, I, I, I enjoyed it, but I, I think both the meaning and nuances of it didn't really quite get through to me. And then I sort of, after it ended, I, I remember seeing the finale um, as it aired. But like I said, it, it didn't really hit me until I probably watched it again in 2010 when I was probably a bit older and I guess more aware to understand a lot of the interesting character nuances and i also had a chance to sort of watch it from beginning to end that's when i became a fan and then and then i took like almost an eight-year break from it and then i rediscovered the show in 2018 and and i I watched Korra a bit late too when Korra aired in 2014 i believe i did not really keep up with it i i watched Korra really uh, maybe like four or five years after it was released and then sort of seeing both both shows in its entirety kind of made me a fan and a follower again and then obviously sprouted that hearing the news about the uh, netflix potential live action and i also started my acting media career around 2017 2018 so i said mm-hmm. my gosh it's my dream at the moment of course was oh if i could somehow be involved in the netflix show as anything as an extra a production assistant like that that would just be a dream so i always kind of kept my eyes on it so that's sort of what yeah. uh kind of re-sparked my interest in in the avatar series absolutely that's awesome Mm. martin how about you how did you find the the show i was pretty much involved from the very first episode of the first book uh i remember i was i think seven or eight years old at the time uh still in preschool and remembering on nickelodeon seeing the the trailer for this new series which looks it looked completely different from what I've, what I've seen before on a, any cartoon network. And pretty much I was hooked on the first episode and watched it every morning during breakfast. And then we discuss the episode which aired that morning at school with everyone, which was oh, okay. such a cool experience. Oh, that's really cool. I wish my school did that. <laughs> <laughs> that's really cool. Awesome. <laughs> kind of similar stories to how Andre and I both got into Avatar because he was involved with Avatar like from when it started airing and I I jumped on the bandwagon pretty late I didn't get into it until like high school like several years after and then kind of binge watched the entire thing through like late at night on my phone like when I'm supposed (laughs) to be asleep (laughs) yeah it's really interesting to see how people like kind of like find the show eventually absolutely so uh victor you founded uh, team avatar films uh, i'm curious as to what drove you to start your own 
film group, your own studio? The most simple and um, comprehensive answer is boredom, to be quite frank, because it sort of happened right at the beginning of the pandemic. And I mean, working as a a full-time artist is that Hollywood film productions essentially had to shut down, especially for the first half year. There, There was absolutely nothing going on. And then it's just both for the sake of my own creative motivations to create something plus um, my love for advertising. I just, I just figured that, you know, if there's sort of a COVID safe way to do something, uh, let's try it. And I was actually on set with, I think you um, interviewed them, uh, Jonathan and Justin uh, from live action avatar. Mm -hmm. Yep. I was briefly involved in their project. So they did a very good job organizing that and kind of proving that you can produce an indie production during the midst of a pandemic. So I I learned a lot Mm -hmm. from them in terms of logistics and putting everything together and got some inspirations for how they sort of crafted their avatar world. And with their permission, because, you know, I didn't want them to feel like I was ripping, ripping them off or, um, uh, or borrowing too much from them. But with their permission, I told them that I'm also interested in producing my own avatar project. Um, I, I didn't quite have everything in place, but I, I told them about that and they, they, um, they were supportive of it. And then, I looked into different areas of the country because filming can get a bit nuanced. Like, for example, having worked in Los Angeles and I've worked on a couple of projects there recently, getting permits to film in particular areas can be overwhelmingly expensive. So, yeah. and then also had to see areas that had, you know, the relevant talent. I mean, I would love to film an Avatar related film in my neck of the woods, Washington, D.C., um, Baltimore area. But then the access to Asian talent's not quite the same. There is a film community here, but in ter- um, and there are some places that could potentially work in terms of environment, parks, whatnot. But what made the most sense was actually going to the Bay Area, San Francisco, because indie filming is just a little bit easier there. They're not as harsh or strict with um, permits. Um, you have all kinds of different locations and you have the relevant talent that you would need for an avatar universe. So sort of as a test run, practically knowing no one, I honestly, and again, this sounds, this, this, this will almost, this almost sounds bizarre to me, but I didn't go through any sort of major casting channel. Normally people go through stuff like actors access or casting networks. I literally just went Mm -hmm. into Facebook groups, looked into the Bay area Facebook groups and said, Hey, I plan on creating an avatar fan film. And who who wants to send applications? Shared my email, sent in, um, shared brief details of the story. That was when that was back in the OG days, the Smuggler and Death Before Dishonor, which I filmed at the end of 2019. Uh, sorry, 2020. I, uh, my concept of time uh, <laughs> always gets a little bit warped. We filmed that yeah. and released that at the end of 2020. And in a little bit, I, I do want to talk about that. Where and I think I mentioned this in an email to you guys that we are actually remastering the previous five short films on top of our 45 minute film, Mattel of Earth and Fire. But yeah, so I gathered this group, the majority of whom I met through Facebook, I did not know them. And it, it was sort of a risk or it was both a risk and a, just an un, un, unknown, you know, working with a bunch of people that have, have no concept of who they are. Other than that, I knew that they were also bored during the pandemic and just also had an, an urge to just do something creative. And it was a mix of people who are full-time artists, people who've never worked in film, and we got those two films produced and it sort of helped me figure out the logistics and prove that it was possible to, to take part in a creative project while being COVID, um, COVID safe. 
So then I came, yeah. so about a month and a half after the smuggling death of Fort Sonner, I came back to the barrier with an, and I did an even bigger casting crew call. It was a little overwhelming for me. And I, it's to the point that I've almost missed interviews. So I was late to interviews that I set up and one of them with the lead actor, which was really embarrassing, but yeah, I, I probably interviewed, including now, because again, apologies if things are a little contrived, but even as recent as like a week and two weeks ago, I am still interviewing people for this film because I, I am bringing people onto the post-production team as, as we expand. But at that moment while we we're filming, I must have interviewed anywhere between like an 80, 80 to 100 people, both actors and anyone that wow. wanted to be part of the crew mm-hmm. or post-production. And that's Martin actually joined between, um, he probably, Martin joined probably early November of 2020. So right after I finished The Smuggler and Death Before Dishonor, it's actually a funny story. He actually sent in an email asking if he could compose for the first two films. But by then I actually already found, had two composers. But then knowing that we would expand, I said, you know, I'm going to take all the help that I can get. get. So I welcomed Martin onto, onto the team. And and again, it's, it's been a pleasure. And, and in a little bit, I'd love to talk about sort of our work process and and he's not the only musician we work with. I mean, to be quite frank, I would have to look at my team spreadsheet, but I, I've lost count of how many people we're working with because it's almost like running a little company, so to speak, because I have to keep track of what sure. everyone's doing from the sound engineers, the musicians, and we have about eight VFX people. So it's it's a it's a interesting and this is all volunteer too right it's a mixed bag, so to speak. But everyone, even the people who are getting paid, they're working on a major discount so to speak yeah so it's, a, it's that's awesome maybe yeah about half and half and again this is sort of my policy i know that different indie groups feel different i mean as an artist i feel like people should be paid something i mean everyone's rates going to be different because you know um i i earn my income off of being an um working on film projects and again i'm and again i don't know if we want to get too much into this i don't mind it's just i'm afraid it's a little dry but i mean besides working as an actor like i work on I work on uh, various shows, whether they're like student films or big Hollywood films. I've worked as assist, like I was Joe Jonas's COVID assistant, partially for the experience, but like it was, it was interesting. And like it allowed me to be on that film set and I got to earn some cash that way. And I mean, some, even though I love acting and editing the most, that I would say those are the two parts of the creative process for film that I enjoy the most. Um, I, I, I get a lot of work as just sort of some sort of production assistant. I've been a script supervisor and I recently like translated pitch decks into Chinese because I've worked in China mm. as well. So that's sort of, that's sort of my mm. exposure and role in this crazy ecosystem of film. Um, that's exciting. Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, again, like I'm applying all of that back into team avatar and then I guess applying it straightforwardly in terms of volunteer work or not. You know, I always tell people that, particularly in post-production, especially because um, that's where, in my opinion, like most of the work is always done. And it's the same for big feature films. You know, big feature films, maybe they film for like 60, 80 days, but then they're like post-production for a year or two. Yeah. Um, So, you know, we just kind of scaled that down. Like, you know, for A Tale of Earth and Fire, in total, it was about six days of filming, which is a lot for an, an indie production but then we've been in kind of heavy post-production for it for over a year now and me martin um and the sound engineers and recently vfx people the colorists we've been spending x amount of hours just um grinding away so i i I did tell everyone that as much as i appreciate like everyone you know working for free or volunteering is that 
um, I am ready to pay something out of pocket. So that's just sort of my policy and personal idea in terms of that we, we should get something forward because I, I, you know, I know it's a cliche, but I believe that artists have something to contribute to, to this world and that they should feel respected and feel like their work means something besides, of course, like that personal warm feeling we get when we create something creative. It, it, it is nice when you get a little paycheck for it. And you know, mm-hmm. I, I always get that gratif- gratification, you know, whether I'm a background actor on a set or, you know, having the chance to translate something for someone. Yeah, I know that was kind of a long, convoluted answer to several <laughs> questions, but I hope I. Can. I don't know. No, it's all good. It was, it's great, and it's it's continually interesting to me that I think every creator that we've brought on to interview, almost all of them have said, "I did this because of the pandemic." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is like it's also true about this podcast right here. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Exactly. So it's like as terrible as this like pandemic has been for us, like it undeniably has given people to dedicate time to projects that they wouldn't have otherwise. Mm. Um, so I think, I think it's really interesting, but, but yeah, I, I wanted to ask you, Martin, as a composer myself, I'm really interested because, you know, Avatar Korra has like a wealth of already like sort of pre-established music. And um, when you're writing music for these projects, how much of your inspiration comes from like the, the soundscape of Jeremy Zuckerman's music and how much of it is is purely like just you, you know, how do you like kind of balance that? Well, for us, um, our story takes place uh, before the events of Avatar The Last Airbender. And obviously I'm inspired by all the musical influences from the show and most of all the usage of instruments. Um, but we kind of refrain from the well-known themes like the Avatar theme, except for the Fire Nation theme, which is a reoccurring uh, theme throughout our Mm -hmm. soundtrack. And we had the fun challenge to write our own theme as uh, the Earth Kingdom in our film will be a main protagonist. Uh, We figured out that the Earth Kingdom doesn't really have their own theme yet yeah obviously we have like uh the little theme for basing say and the Dai Li get their little motif but the earth kingdom as a whole didn't really have a theme yet so for us that was um a fun challenge a bit of a daunting challenge to come up with uh, a theme for such a big uh kingdom as it were. Very interesting. Very interesting. And I mean, of course, uh, like uh, Victor said, the post-production process is is very ongoing. How is that for you, like as a composer, like um, working on, I, I'm assuming you're not working on like the same piece for like a year, but like, what is it like kind of like, kind of like tweaking um, in terms of like the notes that you get from Victor and just kind of like, what's your process with that as a composer? It is It is a lot of tweaking. Uh, I mean, in the beginning, uh, even before they started doing uh, their first shoot, I already uh, read the script, saw some outfits, and uh, just with that inspiration in mind, going and composing some first little themes or ideas to uh, use later during the soundtrack. Um, but yeah, from, from the first draft, it is composing for me pretty much from beginning to end. And during all that time in post-production, I've been going back to uh, pieces of music that I pretty much thought were finished half a year ago, tweaking some more, changing little things, adding some more instruments to make even more of a world soundscape for the soundtrack. 
it, it yeah and for my personal self i i feel like a musical track will will never be finished even when i it's eventually yeah. released i will be thinking like oh if i only could have changed this or added that i hear yeah. that so yeah. it's it's a lot of tweaking and uh we are almost finished with every single piece of music right now unless you know we're still uh finding ways to improve upon certain tracks and moments in the film absolutely and that's a great lesson for writers in general just to never throw anything away because you, you never know yeah. if it's gonna end up being useful um Awesome. Really interesting. So, you know, from I watched the the Smuggler film and the Agni Kai film, and I noticed that both of them are, I believe, set like during the Hundred Years War prior to Atla. So, Victor, I was curious in asking you, like, why, what about that time period in the universe sort of interested you in setting your films in? Was it, was it just trying to get away from like pre-established characters or was it like something specific about the hundred years war in terms like thematically or narratively that you wanted to explore? So the, um, the explanations that come immediately to mind is you, you kind of hit it um, right on its head is that I, as fun as it would be, I, I sort of wanted to avoid, you know, doing a Zuko or Aang fan film because one that's sort of been done, particularly by Reanime, they did a, um, a well-produced cover of The Last Agni Kai. And uh, I believe they I've did a Korra intro as well. Mm-hmm. And so one, like from a fan and indie perspective, it's already been done. Um, you know, the uh, Zuko, was, Zuko, Azula have been covered. Korra has been covered. And I believe I've seen a an Aang fan film that was relatively successful. So I just wanted sort of, sort of to avoid that and also with the upcoming live action from netflix it's just sort of it felt a little almost like super redundant not just partially redundant and then in a way i let, let's say for some reason let's say because i did briefly have this idea i thought okay maybe i could do a complete cover of the zuko alone episode or one episode from avatar just kind of for fun and kind of produce that but then it's sort of like it almost feels like i'd be competing with the live action show if you know what i mean that if Let's just say in theory, I released a Zuko alone live um, live action cover, but then that would definitely be not just compared to the original show, but then it would be compared to what Netflix is about to do, and then it would be compared to what other indie productions have done. And I just sort of wanted to avoid that, um, avoid that kind of unavoidable comparisons. So I said, as much as I love the characters from the show, I sort of wanted to avoid that, and then. The Hundred Year War and kind of um I I was a history and Chinese major in um my undergrad, and so a, a lot of my thesis and classes was actually about the Second World War, but specifically particularly the Second Sino-Japanese War. So the kind of the conflict between China and Japan um, has always fascinated me, and I'm I'm I am Chinese American, and my grandparents did live through the war, and my grandfather was directly impacted by Japanese imperialism, which the showrunners of the original show have directly correlated and recognized that kind of the Earth Kingdom Fire Nation rivalry is based off this Sino-Japanese rivalry. And it's it's shown almost pretty transparently in the show that the Earth Kingdom is obviously inspired by Chinese and Korean culture, where the Fire Nation's a mix of Japan and Southeast Asia. So, and interesting enough, and I, I know that it's expanded a little bit in the comics and, and in the Kyoshi novels, but the, the war is being primarily fought between the Earth Kingdom and the Fire Nation. The Earth Kingdom is doing probably 
if, if we could like turn this into a textbook and like it became like an AP world history textbook, the majority of the fighting is done by the earth, the earth kingdom. The, the Northern water tribes are neutral until the invasion of the North and the Southern water tribes, they, they send like expeditionary forces, but their contribution to manpower is, is, um, very little compared to what the earth kingdom can offer. And it's interesting because like I said, it's, um, apologies because I'm probably gonna turn this into a, a kind of a historical academic discourse seminar thing. No, go for it. <laughs> go for it. We love that here. No, but you know, the, the earth kingdom as in the show is even though they are sort of the victims of fire nation imperialism, but that, that there are a ton of nuances about the earth kingdom, that the earth kingdom bureaucracy is corrupt. It's not, here at all you see that with long fang the daily and how the earth kingdom is not even aware that there's a war being fought which is sort of parallel to how the second world war was evolving in asia of course Jap japanese imperialism at the time was the biggest threat you know to use terms in in atla language it's just sort of you know fascism in europe and imperialism in the east were the biggest threats mm -hmm. to the world but then sort of this and but then when China was invaded, and of course, and kind of like how the Fire Nation invaded um, the Earth Kingdom, China has like five times the population of Japan, so much more land mass. The same thing with the Earth Kingdom. Why is the Earth Kingdom slash China struggling to deal with this small island nation? And, and again, the parallels are so transparent by the showrunners, which I almost appreciate. It's because of a, you know, the Earth Kingdom and China. Basically, what I can say about the Earth Kingdom is true about China in the 1940s. It was not really cohesive. Um, the leadership wasn't completely there. A lot of the leadership didn't even really care about fighting the war, so to speak. So um, I really wanted to take the chance to kind of grab on those nuances and focus on the Earth Kingdom Fire Nation rivalry, but then also explore the nuances within the Earth Kingdom as well. And I really hope that Rave Zen, who plays my my lead character, Colonel Gon, can kind of um, Send in his two cents there, but he, he plays this sort of disgruntled, talented yet frustrated Earth Kingdom Colonel because he's frustrated with how the war is going. He knows that the war can be won, but he can't get the backing of the Earth King. He can't really get he can't really get everyone uh, connected or um, or coordinated to really tackle tackle against the Fire Nation. So he he's sort of spending the film finding a strategy to 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 he spends the majority of the film trying to find a way to find a solution to ending the war um, with, with his own particular strategies, strategies, strategies and twists. So that's why I sort of became captivated with the idea of the hundred year war, because we got, a, we got to, because the fire nation is kind of transparently, at least in this stage of Atla history is transparently on the wrong side of history. They're, you know, their eradication of the air nomads, their invasion into the Earth Kingdom is completely wrong. But the, are the Earth Kingdom completely good? By all means, no. But that doesn't mean, but you know, just because the Earth Kingdom is bad doesn't justify the Earth Kingdom conquest, which is a discussion that actually, you know, revealing minimal is a discussion that does sort of come up within our film. And by a minor note is that on top of this 45 minute film, there's a 10 minute follow up. And after that, um, which will be its own film, but I, I, I don't want to talk too much about it because it gets too much plot details and nuances. Yeah, away. But, but, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I did make sure of that and hopefully I, we did it kind of effectively, effectively sort of that, that discussion of nuances between the, between good and evil, between the fire nation earth kingdom does come up. But again, like, you know, 
that's not to say that's not to justify Fire Nation imperialism, but it's also to point out that that much of the earth what the Earth Kingdom is doing is like yes, we get that that they're victims, but they're sort of being frustrating about it. You know what I mean? Like they could fight the Fire Nation more effectively, but they're essentially choosing not to. And that's that's Colonel Gon's big motivation here in this film. And the last reason why I'm focusing on this part, and this is kind of a straightforward, more funny reason, is because I didn't want to have any air nomads because that's just very expensive with production value. Sure, yeah. Makes sense. It's like you constantly have to do the tattoo and then you have to incorporate airbending and it's just, it, it would just complicate things production. I would love to yeah. incorporate air nomad characters, but then it would have to be at a very specific time too, creatively. Like it would have to be yeah. before the Hundred Year Wars or during the air nomad genocide. And then, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but based on my knowledge of the Atla universe during the Air Nomad genocide, there was, I didn't, I didn't see Earth Kingdom or Water Tribe characters involved. Of course, I'm sure someone could maybe mix that narrative and maybe like the Earth Kingdom tried sending contingents of troops to try to help the Air Nomads, something like that. But I I did want sort of a diverse show as well. So, you know, um, I think A Tale of Earth and Fire presents this opportunity to have Earth Kingdom, Water Tribe, and Fire Nation characters, including Air Nomads. Again, production value would have been more complicated. And then it, I would have had to find a very compelling reason why Air no, why this Air Nomad or certain Air Nomads survived the Air Nomad genocide. But then it takes away from Aang's unique characteristic of being the last Airbender. Like, it, you yeah. know what I mean? So I didn't, yeah, I yeah. didn't want to forgive this strong language, but pervert the narrative, original narrative, too much, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. Like the, it's, I think it's good practice for, you know, fan films to keep it as like canon compliant as possible because then, then it, you could like really, as an audience member, visualize that story happening without having it, you know, affect the main story too much. So yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a great um, approach for sure. Absolutely. Um, so this is a question kind of like leaning into the next question here um, for both of you here. Uh, what role do you think that fan films play in the realm of fandom and fan engagement? I know, big open-ended question, right? <laughs> you want to go, Martin? Oh, do you want me to go first? It doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> I can quickly go. I just feel like I'm talking too much, so I want—I definitely want to give the floor to everyone else whenever. <laughs> um, it's interesting because I was actually... Uh, so one of our... Wait, I've... Again, I almost feel weird saying this, but I guess I shouldn't be shy about it. Like Team Avatar Films, does, we do have two publicists, and we, I've actually talked to them about that question, sort of the role that fan films play and indie films play um, in this whole in this whole dynamic. And it actually varies by franchise. We've discovered, like mm-hmm. for example, Star Wars and Lord of the Rings fan films. One, there's so many of them, and they're they're very well done. There's a lot of high production value, but they actually have support from the original creators. Like Lucasfilms even has a fan film festival for Star Wars, and it's it's interesting. And I'm almost envious that they sort of get this organized, almost pension or support for what they're doing. Yeah, and and then and then certain franchises like Marvel, Disney they hunt down fan films. Like they don't, they, that's why you don't really see an Iron Man film, fan film and stuff like that. Like they're very strict about the copyright. And from what I've heard is that certain animes are also very strict. You know, like if I make a One Punch Man thing or I don't know, like Studio Ghibli fan film, there's a good chance that it might get shut down. Um, 
Avatar sort sort of seems to be in, sort of in between. Um, from what I know, from both like a legal and personal observation, is that they don't seem to mind fan films at all, which is, which is good because I, I think that fan films ultimately, other than like being free promotion for the original content, it just shows that the community is involved. And I really hope, I really hope that again, this is just me being idealistic and self-serving, but I really hope that in general. I guess like the OG content creators, you know, whether it's Avatar, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, what um, Marvel, what have you, are sort of supportive of fans. How um, not expanding the lore, but like again, just celebrating the content by you know creating their own uh, own stuff. Again, like I said, without drawing too far from the canon, and and again, just as I said, it, it's it's just a nice celebration and. And, and promotion of, of of the content that we love. So I, I, I'm fully supportive of, of fan content being created. And, but as long as it, like, I guess, again, I know it's that tricky balance. Like, as long as it's yours, but not yours, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's yeah. just, you know, you add your own sort of original flavor to it. But then, but since it's based off a world that already exists, you have to be faithful to that. You know what I mean? Like, you can't. You don't want to change too much of the history or um, or at least major details of it. You don't want to change sort of the rules of that world about how bending works or the magic system works. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting that you brought that up because I've, I've sort of been thinking about that. It's just sort of like the role that fan films sort of play in this creative ecosystem and whether um, and why certain franchises have vastly different attitudes towards them. And thankfully, and hopefully this doesn't change Netflix and Avatar Studios don't seem to mind them, but you know, they're not exactly um subsidizing fan films. As much as I wish they were, they're not, sure. they're not exactly doing that. So they seem to be like in between like Star Wars Lord of the Rings and then in, and then what Disney does. Sure. And it's it's interesting too because I remember us asking when we were interviewing J and J films, I think we asked a similar question. And um one of their answers I remember was purely based on the fact that they watched the original live action movie and were frustrated by it as many fans were. Do you think, especially in terms of like representation and the way that movie was whitewashed, do you think that there's a certain element to that as well, making these films sort not sort of like correcting or anything, but being like, this is how live action interpretations should be, you know? Oh gosh. I don't even mean this as a joke. I almost forgot about that movie. I forgot that we we're going to mention it. <laughs> because I'm I'm thinking about the Netflix live action for various reasons. I don't know if we have time or should get into it, but um, it's like you said. I don't want I don't want to see it as a correction because one, I went off the t- timeline, and it's just I, we can get into this. And I think it's been an age long debate, not just in this fandom, but with other fandoms. Sort of like are live actions completely necessary? Which is sort of odd for me to ask because I'm making a live action, and but at the same, <laughs> right? right. <laughs> but but it's, it's also sort of an interesting test because it's sort of like, can you really bring the world of Avatar and bending faithfully through a live action? And it's sort of, to be quite frank, um, I don't. And of course, you know the the smaller indie fan groups they've they've done a pretty good job considering the resources that we have. But I don't I don't think Hollywood has proven that it can be adapted. And again, like maybe the Netflix live action can change that. But of course, you know, there's concerns because the original creators left and other controversial to- topics that 
um, I might be a little bit refrained from bringing up because I work in Hollywood and, you know, it's not impossible that I might meet one of these people one day. Sure. Yeah. But um, it's, yeah, it's sort of, I still feel like it's being tested if that makes sense. Um, and, and honestly with the, I know that Avatar is not an, this is a debate in itself. Um, I don't think Avatar is an official anime, but sort of, I don't think Hollywood or any sort of live action production has proven that they've been able to adopt anime very faithfully at least none that i can think of so i like i said it's just my best answer to that is sort of these are waters that are still being tested and then as a indie film production um you know we we have vfx and um and actually that was sort of it's an interesting trivia because while i was filming this i wanted to minimize vfx as much as possible because one as much as I know it's a powerful and helpful tool. I think big films over rely on VFX. I mean, without pointing anything out, like some films are, some films are essentially animations, but I don't mean yeah. that in like the most optimistic way, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Cause it no, turns yeah. into like a CGI slugfest, which is like appealing to watch once or twice, but you know, I think it distracts from what should matter in a story and which is, you know, good writing, good arcs and, and everything else. But of course, like I knew that with the world of bending, it's unavoidable that there should be some VFX. So, um, and we we go through this process where we definitely have test audiences and and you know the official term is post production assistants review our films. And at first, you know, to be transparent about it, I was sort of a little bit frustrated because the most common feedback was more bending, more bending, more bending, more CGI, more CGI. And I was a little bit frustrated about it. First, I was like, doesn't the writing matter? What about the music? And but, you know, kind of reflecting on it, that one in this in this fantastic world of Avatar, and again, this is true for every other franchise, whether it's Studio Ghibli, anime, Lord of the Rings, um, Star Trek, Star Wars, is that you, you can't, especially in a live action adaptation, I, I don't think you can really get away with minimal, even just minimal VFX. So what I did was maybe that's, that's a few months ago, I, I made a determination. I said, I know that this goes away goes against some of my creative instincts, but I'm going to recruit as many talented VFX artists as I can and see what we can incorporate it. And I think you saw the trailer and you saw that we did have some, I would say pretty, it turned out better than expected for me. Like we found aspects of the film, like where can we have VFX? Where, where can we have boulders and fire flown? Or like, can we have this person sword on fire? That sort of thing. Yeah. And um we're and we're Martin and I actually talking about that, and we have another producer, Jamie, who um, wasn't able to join us today. We all we had a deep discussion on it too. Like we, I think again, maybe Martin can maybe share her soft thoughts in a bit. Is that we should incorporate more CGI VFX, but we have to be really intentional with it. Of course, yeah. You know what I mean? Like someone shouldn't be walking in like their head is on fire. Like you know that sort of thing. Like if there's yeah. an action that they're doing, whether it's intentional or not, that presents room for bending, we're going to try to put it in. And from a human resources um, perspective, I was actually very surprised and, and again, grateful for the people I've found. Um, um, we have uh, Zach from England, who's, actually, who's also worked on J&J's project and other, he's worked on a lot of major projects um, as well. He's contributed a few shots. And then uh, we have someone in Nepal working on something. And then... Myself, I'm getting a little bit into After Effects. As much as I want to, I'm mostly doing it out of necessity because I can't pay that many VFX artists. <laughs> so I'm, 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 learning, I'm learning a little bit. I'm doing some of the simpler stuff. So 
Um, and again, it's just, I, I feel bad. Oh, we have someone in Washington state that also contributed a really cool uh, fire shot. And, and again, like, it, like I said, the, the kind of the list of post-production crew has, it's like, it's only got getting larger and I'm, I'm still interviewing people because, um, and if we can get to this, like I'm still interviewing soloists for musicians and additional VFX people, if it's necessary. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I like I like what you said the the thing about being intentional with the visual effects because that could also be said with pretty much any element of making a film. Like if it has to have some sort of intention behind it. And Martin, I'm curious, do you do you and Victor have like regular spotting sessions where you go through the film and pick where the music is or do you just kind of go by instinct? Like what's what's the process behind that? For for this film we didn't do the uh <clears throat> the classic spotting session where we both go through the entire film and discuss where music needs to be uh, and where it doesn't have to be uh, necessary. Uh, for this film, I just watched the first draft of the movie and decided myself where I think music was necessary. But we do have a whole lot of sessions uh, on Facebook Messenger and on Zoom uh, where we basically are talking hours on end sometimes um about a certain scene or about a certain track how we can improve the emotion or how we can achieve a certain vibe that we need to uh, have for a, a certain scene um and i'm happy to say that there hasn't been one meeting where i i was like well we didn't get anything useful out of this it's always we yeah. always had interesting ideas or came up with something new and refreshing um and yeah we have been doing that for i almost i think more than a year now <laughs> yeah and i want to touch on what uh victor what you said about like the netflix live action series and cgi i think we we're not sure if avatar studios plans to do some live action stuff there are rumors but we don't know anything for sure but i think this netflix series is almost kind of going to be the ultimate test to see whether or not Avatar could work as a live action series because I mean with all the resources Netflix has like if if they're not able to translate it well we could see what Avatar Studios does but you know it's it's that I think there's going to be a big sort of expectation there uh mm -hmm. just based on the fact that Netflix is this giant corporation that can afford to get the something like CGI to like that level where they could translate bending well. And it, it almost doesn't surprise me that you say like your test audiences like want more bending. Cause I think looking at just like the pilot of avatar, I think the magic system is one of the reasons why it hooks viewers. Cause it's something we've never seen before in a whole lot of places. Mm -hmm. And I think it's also something that people want to know more about that kind of like hooks them into the story um and it's also why like it could make or break like something like that you know but i think there's there's a lot there's a lot obviously writing on the live action series for sure um but you know i'm curious you you also mentioned that you know you you have plans hopefully to go more into hollywood what do you think the future of team avatar films as an indie group sort of looks like and that can that question could go for both of you guys so that's also something that's been in discussion and as much as I, 
I love Avatar and as, as much as I'm loyal to the uh, loyal to the franchise, so to speak. Sort of a dream of mine eventually is to actually sort of start going into other content. I don't know if I'll create fan films or films based off other worlds or franchises, but eventually, you know, once we kind of get our foot off the ground with our our Terror of Earth and Fire series, and that's also been an interesting discussion. It's sort of grown, it's sort of organically grown into this series. Um, I, I might want to try something more indie, if that makes sense. You know, like original scripts, like whether it's like an original love story, an original action story, or something along those lines. That's something that's like maybe within the a year or two in terms of Team Avatar. Like with, it'll still be under the Team Avatar films banner, but it, it there's a good chance we won't be making Avatar content forever. But it's something that, you know, uh, we would stay focused on for a while because... And like I said, and then maybe maybe this isn't as overly optimistic as some filmmakers can be. So, but yeah, this film has been separated into three acts. And so the trailer, which I would love to hear your thoughts on um, if you have a chance to watch it. I know I sent the link very late. That's kind of the crown jewel of what we have so far. It's Hell of and Fire. That's where most of our emotional and financial resources have gone into. And then we are remastering everything we've released and, and releasing additional content and narrations by rave who plays our main lead colonel gone he i plan to re-release the five films you know because we have smuggler death before dishonor um jing's nightmare meet the recruits uh sue versus lang and i know that's a lot of names so i and even though these films were released individually last year kind of looking over everything and then with a discussion with my producers and other post-production teammates we figured that actually it would be really cool if we could combine these five films add some additional footage, add some additional narration, kind of combine it as a prequel or precursor to A Tale for Them Fire. So we have Act 1, kind of the remaster, the combination of the five films, and then Act 2 is A Tale for Them Fire. Act 3, we have a script and a, kind of a map for it, but then it would take... To, and again, I mean, I speak plainly as a filmmaker and so forth. Like, the production of Act 3 will not is not guaranteed because we would need a significantly larger budget and support for it to... Be enabled to to adapt it and conclude the story in a way that we want to conclude it. Um, and I, I am sort of riding and relying on the success of the first two acts of a, of this tale of Earth and Fire to see if we'll be able to continue producing. So that's a bridge and um, uphill battle we'll, we'll have to continue to fight. And it's something that I've talked to about my publicist. We have kind of this fundraiser campaign planned and we have it and again we're going to see how audiences react because and again this is just me sharing a personal creative philosophy that people don't have to agree with as much as i believe we should create things for ourselves as as artists ultimately whether we recognize it or not we create art for other people it's just if people you know and again it's almost democratic in that sense in that Let's say, you know, we release a tale of Earth and Fire. It's not as successful or well praised as much as I hoped for. And it, there'll be a reason for it. Maybe it's like production value. Maybe I didn't write the story in the most compelling way or something like that. So it's just sort of, in other words, it's sort of like, why should I keep creating something if, you know, the overwhelming majority of people don't appreciate it? Um, and again, that's also space for me to reflect and think about how can I get better as a, as a filmmaker? I mean, that's why we're putting everything and putting our hearts and souls into A Tale for the Fire and the, and the previous films, because we want to be able to present our best and be 
And one goal is sort of besides attracting Avatar fans is that we're trying to present it in a way where it's like without even knowing a thing about Avatar that you can still appreciate. And so again, that's my long convoluted answer. And I again apologies <laughs> if anything kind of went everywhere, but happy to uh, have any follow up. But of course, I also want to give the floor to Rave as well. Yeah, we we just been joined by the lead actor of Tale of Earth and Fire, Rave. How's it going, Rave? I didn't realize I was a lead character, but maybe I... <laughs> <laughs> Surprise! How you find out? Yeah, this is your casting announcement. <laughs> yeah, Rave. Uh, we just want to know um, what was your um, what was your introduction to Avatar? We we like to ask all our guests this: like, how did you find the show, and how did you get involved with Team Avatar Films? I honestly found out about Avatar through this project. To be really honest with you, I started watching the series. I started finding out about. Uh, the show and the content um, when I was really getting into it, uh, research for the project. And uh, it's been a real eye-opener because I have always uh, been really interested in animation and also uh, stories of fantasy, uh, parallel realities and stuff like that. And through doing a show like that, I felt, yeah, it, 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 was, it was a happy accident, I feel. That it was, um, it, it, it just chanced upon me during the time of this time of my life, yeah. Awesome. Awesome. That's really cool. So can you guys tell us a little bit about your upcoming film, A Tale of Earth and Fire? I know, Victor, you kind of gave us a little bit of uh, of a synopsis, but um, in terms of like the story and where you guys are at with it, have you finished filming? Are you in post-production officially? Uh, where are you guys at with that? So principal photography has finished for the first two acts. And so it's everything is in post-production and it's just polishing the film and it's everything from sound design, music, color grading, um, uh, VFX, and we've made major strides, but of course we're still um, um, prepping that. And then, gosh, fingers crossed, because I know post-production accidents always happen. I would say the rough tam- timeline is that A Tale of Earth and Fire, I'm hoping for release in May, and then an act, an act one, which is a remaster. These are films that have already been released and people I may have already watched, but you know it will be re-released with a whole new color grade, additional VFX, more bending, more bending for the people that keep asking for it. <laughs> and and then, and again, additional footage and narrations from Rave from Colonel Gone, which I've talked to him about. Hope you were, um, not sure if you recall. And then that I'm hoping for around an April release, so to speak. Fingers That's crossed exciting. because, you know, I know delays always happen, but um, yeah. we're both logistical and personal reasons as much as i love this like it's not something i want to work on forever because we all have careers outside of team avatar films and then but i I also again like since rave had a chance to join us i want i want him to really have the floor here and as i said you know without major spoilers like i'd love for if you don't mind me kind of facilitating some of the questions because i'd love for him to talk about the film yeah your character colonel gone would you mind just talking about him and yeah telling Andre and Kayla about Colonel Gone a little bit and what sort of, what what is he doing in this story and what's his objective? What is he doing in this story? <clears throat> I believe he's, he's like all characters. He's a man with a very big dream and people with a very big dream um, um, resort to very big ways to do, to accomplish those very big dreams. And it is linked to his past, which uh, was a... a um, he grew up in a harsh environment and it molded a, uh, an undying ambition to, to go after his goals. Um, I, I think I'm being too ambiguous here, but, 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 um, 
it's 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 I I I don't want to spoil it for you. Um, I, I I think what I'm really trying to say is, who is Colonel Gunn? He's someone who who has really high stakes uh, with everything he does, and it reminds me of, without going too political about it, invasion of countries because of ambition and greed and and wanting to dominate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Rave, a little uh, before you joined in, I was talking with Kayla, Andre, and Martin, sort of about again, like the nuances of this word, which sort of relates to like you know the nuances in Asia too, which is why I love the show and sort of was hoping to focus more on in our tale of Earth and Fire. Mm-hmm. As how would you, how would you say like Colonel Gon feels about the Earth Kingdom, that monarchy, and with his goals of defeating the Fire Nation? And again, feel free to talk about your relationship with the other main actors. We have like there's technically like eight principal actors. So, you know, it's a it's a cool ensemble. And I wish they could all be here to kind of share their perspectives. Um, but obviously for scheduling reasons, and I know that you could only have four people here. I, I kept that kind of limited. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like no man's an island. We all need each other to survive, and we we need each other to um get to where we want to go. And I feel that my relationship with the people around me is um, can sometimes be very much of a um, their transactions. I mean, I feel like all relationships are it sounds horrible, but some sort of transaction we we, we both get something out of each other, be it love, be it uh, an opportunity to for more power, a, a we get to someone to get to someone else or, or whatever it is, you know? So it's, it's, it's very much, it, it can sometimes be very much transactional. Um, bear in mind that, that Gunagan is a person who has got no time to waste. Every every second, every waking second is, dominated by thoughts of um intense thoughts of how he can move ahead and and yet that that he's um i would say he's a manipulator a um a very crafty manipulator of minds yeah well ultimately what would you say like he does want what's best for the earth he's a patriot too right yeah he's definitely a patriot too he 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 does things all for the um the best reasons yeah um and and also history is written by the victors by the victor jengs and then by the victors um, whoever wins the war will get to tell their side of the story and i do not believe that people like this can controversial i do not believe that Joseph Stalin, Adolf Hitler, um, and all those horrible people um, thought they were doing the world bad. They don't wake up in the morning and say, "Hey, let's be a bad, the worst guy in the world right now." It's, it's it's everyone feels like they're doing some kind of good for the world by executing what they're they set themselves out to execute. So, um, yeah. So I, I think I think I think Colonel Gunn believes strongly in that. And it's, by it's the way, too. he's the narrator in the trailer that I sent you if you recognize his voice. Oh, awesome. Mm. Oh my goodness. Um, so where can our listeners follow Team Avatar Films to stay up to date on uh, what's next? They can follow us on YouTube um, or Instagram at, at Team Avatar Films. We do have a TikTok that we're still trying to expand and occasionally post on. And I believe, 
I wish my publicist was here, but yeah, I believe those are the three major social medias we're on at Team Avatar Films on Instagram and then on YouTube, it's just Team Avatar Films. Awesome. So mm-hmm. we'll, we'll make sure to link those in the description for this episode. Perfect. And again, thank you so much. And sorry if any of my oh, of answers course. got wordy. Please edit or cut as you will. No, <laughs> it was it was great. No wordy is good for an interview. We like that. Absolutely. <laughs> we love that stuff. Awesome. And for our regular listeners and any new listeners joining us, uh, we are at the Avatar Podcast. Av- at the Avatar Hour podcast on Facebook and Instagram, at Avatar Hour on Twitter, and at the Avatar Hour pod on TikTok. It's a lot of names. Um, But yeah, as always, I mean, thank you guys so much for joining us. Um, We were really happy to make this happen. And we really appreciate you guys taking the time to come on and and talk about this uh, amazing project you guys going on. So thank you guys for joining us. Our pleasure. Thank you so much. All right. Well, thank you so much, uh, everyone, for listening. We will see you guys next week with our regular recap episodes. My name is Andre. And I'm Kayla. (laughs) Yes, I'm more Team Avatar Films. Awesome. All right. Bye, everyone. Bye.